Well, would you pray with me once more before we start? Thank you, Father, for your word. The entrance of your words gives light. Your very own word teaches us. And so we pray that you would speak light into our minds and hearts and souls this morning through your word, that you would reveal to us the realities that we are talking about and press them home to us, that we would not just entertain these things as myths, but as history, and that we would reckon with the God who is this morning. We thank you that we are your Exodus people, that you have called us out of slavery to sin and into a wilderness world right now as we look forward to the promised land when our Lord and Savior comes again. Thank you for Jesus, the one who endured the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to you and brought safely out of slavery and into joyful service to you. That's what we want to do even as we continue our worship this morning through the hearing of your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in a sermon series through the book of Exodus, and we are treating the plague narratives in chapters 7 through 10 in a little bit different fashion. We're not necessarily going plague by plague or verse by verse, but we're kind of treating them as as an entire entity, as as a holistic event. And we are making our way through these plague narratives with three sermons. The sermon last week, we looked at just the preview to the plagues in Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And now we are going to look at the plagues themselves, all nine of them, at least the first nine of them, in sort of a holistic way and what we can learn from them. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll come back, round out chapter 10 by looking at the purpose of the plagues and what God had in mind to teach his people and to teach the people of Egypt and us through this whole narrative. So this morning we come to the pattern of the plagues. This is the battle of the gods part two. And you may notice that the word plague doesn't show up. We've read through about two-thirds of the narrative so far. We'll conclude it next week. But if you notice in your your careful reading, you didn't notice the word plague show up. In fact, it doesn't actually appear here or in the rest of the story. And if you look at Exodus 7, verse 3, they're called signs and wonders. God doesn't call them plagues, but that doesn't mean it's not appropriate to call them plagues. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, God says that he's going to multiply his signs and wonders toward Egypt. But plague, that doesn't mean plague is a bad, bad label. A plague is something that is a blow or a wound, and we often see the language of God striking the Egyptians. We saw this back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, where the Lord said, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. So they are signs and wonders, yes, but they are signs and wonders designed to strike Egypt, to plague Egypt. So that's why we call them plagues. Now this morning we're going to look at three aspects of these plagues. The first will be the design of the plagues, the second the description of the plagues, and finally the destruction of the plagues. First of all, Let's look at the design of the plagues. This is going to be a little bit technical, so hang with me for about five minutes, okay? We're going to try to, I'm going to, try to give you a little bit, of, little bit of technical stuff here, but it's still important, and it helps us understand how these plagues are structured. Because we might think there's kind of a haphazard arrangement, like God's just picking various phenomena that he's going to throw at Pharaoh and make his life miserable in hopes that he will repent. But we know our God to be way more strategic than that. 
He is always purposeful. He's always organized. He's always thoughtful. He's not just saying, hey, the gnats didn't work. Let's try the flies. Maybe the hail will work. I'll kill your livestock. Okay, the darkness. No, there's a, there's a purpose to all of this, and I want to show it to you briefly. First of all, I want you to notice how each of the, each of the plagues begins. Now, I'm treating these plagues in triads. I think they, at least the first nine to us come in, in, in threes. There's a significance to the first three. There's a significance to four through six, the second three. And there's a significance to seven through nine, the last three. And I want to show you that. First of all, if you notice how plague one, plague four, and plague seven, the beginning of each one of the triads, how they begin, they begin exactly the same way. They begin with Moses going out to confront Pharaoh early in the morning, Exodus 7.15, Exodus 8.20, and Exodus 9.13. Second, plagues set two, five, and eight all begin the same way as well, with God calling Mo- Moses to simply go to Pharaoh and do this. That's in Exodus 8, 1, 9, 1, and 10, 1. And then the third plague in the triad, 3, 6, and 9, also are similar in that they include no confrontation whatsoever with Pharaoh. Rather, God simply commands Moses to perform the sign and wonder, the symbolic gesture, and bring the plague unheralded to Moses or to Pharaoh. And these three plagues all have a reasonably short narrative to them. So there is a pattern here. The way the plague begins, whether it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or nine, they all begin a certain way. Also, each plague, each round of plagues, I should say, one through three, four through six, and seven through nine, all end with a significant climax. There's something serious that God does that's unique. In the first cycle, at the end of the third plague, the Egyptian magicians are unable to replicate the plague and admit that it must be the finger of God. In the second cycle, in, verses four, or in plagues 4, 5, and 6, the Egyptian magicians are unable to stand before Moses. And then in the final cycle, plagues 7, 8, and 9, Moses is, ended up being driven away from the presence of Pharaoh. So all of these are significant in the way they begin and in the way they end. One more thing. They're also significant in who initiates them. We might think it's just Moses, but it's not only Moses. Moses, of course, is the representative that God has chosen, but remember Aaron's with him, and the Lord is acting behind all of these plagues. So we see in the first set of plagues, plagues one through three, Aaron is the one who initiates the plague. In the second three, four, five, and six, the Lord is described as the one who initiates the plague. And then in plagues 7 through 9, Moses is described as the one who initiates the plague. Now, of course, all of them are involved, but it's interesting that a certain leader is highlighted for each cycle. That's, I say all that, I know that's rather technical, but I say all that up front just to underscore the purposefulness and the design of God in the way he's executing his plan here. It's not haphazard, it's very intentional. We're going to talk about what some of that intention is as we go through the sermon, but I want you to appreciate that God is not capricious in his judgments. He's not just willy-nilly, what am I going to do today to, to, to judge the people of Egypt for their rebellion against me and not releasing my people? No, God is very purposeful, he's calculated, and he's very intentional about the way he goes about executing his judgments. Secondly, the description of the plagues. There are nine of them, 
Well, there's 10 actually. We're going to deal with 10 by itself in a couple of weeks because it's unique in a lot of ways and has a very special significance, not only to the people of Israel, but also to the church of Jesus Christ. And we will talk about that more in the weeks to come. But for right now, we're going to look at the first nine in sort of a holistic way. And I want to go through each one of the plagues and just describe what they are in essence. And then we're going to come back and round it out with some application. All right. So the first plague that God sends to Pharaoh and Egypt is known as the blood plague. It's the Nile being turned into blood in Exodus 7, verses 14 through 25. Fish die, the land stinks, the Egyptians had to dig along the Nile in order to get water to drink since the blood rendered the Nile useless, both for drinking and for transportation and for anything else. This catastrophe, this first plague, would be similar to having all of our oil supplies cut off, the stock market collapsing, drinking water being contaminated, and having no food in the grocery store. I mean, Owensboro can barely handle one of those things, let alone all of those things at once. If you've lived here long enough, you know if there's the threat of rain, the grocery stores will empty. Not quite that bad, but similar. If there's a threat of a natural disaster, or if there's ice, or if there's any, drinking water's gone. Fast food restaurants start posting their signs. No, don't come to us. We don't have anything. But this was a significant economic disaster of a plague. And the blood is significant in that it points back to Exodus 1 with that previous Pharaoh basically seeking to eliminate the people of Israel by shedding their blood, right? When he tried to kill the baby boys of Israel by throwing them into the Nile. God says to Pharaoh, you want blood? You got it. You want blood? You got it. Number two, plague number two, the frogs, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. The description of this plague is striking. God says that the frogs are going to be in your house, in your bedroom, on your bed, in your ovens, in your kneading bowl. Isn't that interesting how descriptive God gets of how overwhelming these frogs were? Now, the frogs were a blessing to Egypt. They were viewed as a sign of fertility and life. He says, you want life? I'll give you life. You're going to have so much life, you're going to wish for death. And the frogs died in their houses and in their courtyards and in their fields, and they were gathered, the text says, into heaps, and they stank. you got to Big enough imagination to think about what something what that might have looked like. And this, too, is directed toward Pharaoh's actions back in chapter 5, verse 21. Notice, as a result of Pharaoh's oppression, the people of Israel come to Moses and start complaining, and they said, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. God says, You want stink? I'll give you stink. And he responds by giving them frogs such that when they're gathered into heaps and are dead, will fill the land with a reek that could not even be contained. Number three, gnats in chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. Aaron, through Moses' instruction, was called to take the staff and to strike the dust of the earth, and the dust of the earth becomes gnats. These could have been mosquitoes, they could have been some other small insect, we're not sure. But nevertheless, 
the text says that they were on man and beast, and they were quite the nuisance. Number four, flies in chapter 8, verses 20 through 32. There are swarms of flies sent throughout Egypt. God says that they will be on you, on your people, on your servants, and the houses will be filled with swarms of flies, even on the ground on which they stood. Now, if you're like me, you can't stand one fly. I hate them. I hate them being in our house. I want them dead. Summertime is terrible in that regard, especially when you have kids coming in and out of the house letting three or four flies in every time. And you spend your summer on a fly-killing mission. Now, this would have been horrendous. I mean, think of the description. On, your, on you, on your people, on your servants, in your houses will be filled with swarms of flies and even on the ground on which you stand. I mean, flies typically avoid trying to get killed. Here, it's unavoidable not to kill them because you're walking on them. Fifthly, livestock. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Here, the Egyptian livestock are killed. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. The text says this plague, quote, ruined Egypt. It ruined them. It takes away the very source of life. The, the Nile's been struck. The frogs and gnats and flies have been released. The livestock has been killed. Sixthly, boils. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. Moses throws handfuls of soot from the kiln, and it becomes dust over the land, which becomes boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. This is the first time their physical persons are afflicted. They are now filled, their bodies are filled with horrendous boils and sores. Seventhly, hail. Chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. The text describes very heavy hail, which was unheard of in the land of Egypt, falling alongside thunder and rain. The text says the sky was filled with fire and hail rained down upon them. The eighth plague, locusts, chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. The locusts covered the land so no one could see it. They ate everything that was left. The text says not a green thing remained. And, it, and the locusts filled the homes of the Egyptians. Notice that's the third time that a plague is told that it's going to fill their home. It's going to get in all their private business. It's going everywhere they think they can avoid it. One place you think you can avoid the plague is your home. Wrong. They're coming in there too. The frogs are going to be there. The flies are going to be there. The locusts are going to be there. They're all over your stuff. They're all over you. They're all over your family. They're all over everything you own. And then finally, darkness. Chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. Three days of pitch black darkness. They did not see one another. The plagues fell on all the areas of life that were supposed to be protected by Egypt's gods. Remember, I called this little mini-sermon series through the plagues the battle of the gods because behind this, this battle is the true and living God and the Egyptian false gods. And all, many commentators point out, that all of these plagues had some association with the foreign gods of Egypt. 
and God is pronouncing his supremacy over all of these foreign gods, saying, I am the Lord and there is no other. But all these plagues assaulted what Egypt trusted in to protect them, namely their gods. The gods of Egypt all clustered around the three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the water, the land, and the sky, and God sent plagues from all of them. Think about it. The first two plagues assaulted the water. The Nile bleeds. The frogs rise up from the water to not bless the land, but curse the land. The next four plagues assault the land. The dust turns to gnats. It swarms with flies. The livestock die, and human skin is covered with sores and boils. God is afflicting the land. And then finally, in the final three plagues, God afflicts from the sky. He brings destruction through hail. Locusts are sent on the east wind, and even the sun itself is blackened out. God is assaulting the three objects of Egyptian worship, the sky, the land, and the water. All that they look to for their protection and provision, God turns on them. If the ancient world, think about this, were a three-story house with the earth, the waters beneath, and the heavens above, God brought destruction to each story of the house and humiliated the false gods that the Egyptians thought governed each one of those realms. As one writer says, the Egyptian gods were ferreted out and removed from the house like a pest or an infestation from cellar to rafter. Everything was rooted out. Now, having seen something of the description of the plagues, and we're going to come back next week, Lord willing, and talk more about Pharaoh's response to these plagues and how he's hardening his heart and why that's adding more and more to the plagues, more plagues to, to Egypt. And we're going to talk about God's purpose in all of that. But suffice it to say, this is total cataclysmic universal destruction from the land, from the water, and from the sky. Nothing's left. Nothing's left. After this, these plagues have run their course, nothing is left in Egypt. It's gone. Everything's gone. What is happening throughout this plague, throughout each successive plague? Creation is being destroyed. That's what's happening. Creation is being destroyed. So we're going to spend our last bit of time here this morning under number three, the destruction of the plagues, and talk about exactly how creation is being destroyed. But before I say that, let me say this. Our sin, brothers and sisters, has significant consequences. You might think that your sin is just affecting you. That's what Pharaoh thought too, and it didn't. It affected everybody. Our sin has a way of affecting not just us personally, although it does that, but also the people around us. Our relationships are affected by sin. Our world, 
Our economic systems are broken as a result of sin. Our political systems are broken as a result of sin. Everything is infected as a result of human sin. When humans choose to rebel against God, there are lasting consequences in the structures and in the person. It's just the way sin works. We see it play out this way in the story of Egypt. It didn't just have personal consequences. It had political consequences. It had economic consequences. It had ramifications that went on and on and on. Pharaoh's stubbornness destroyed Egypt. It's because sin disintegrates us. It decreates us, and it decreates creation. Creation literally gets undone through human evil. Now, thankfully, God in his grace restrains much of that evil. I know one of the classes this morning talked a lot about common grace, and we've heard about it even this morning in our service. Thank God for common grace because creation would be far, far worse if God were not operating in the world in such a way as to preserve it from as evil as it could become. Do you know the reason the world's not as bad as it is? It's not because people aren't as bad as they are, but because God is good as he is. People, I mean, if God let off his hand of restraint on this world, it would be a hideous and horrendous place that made Egypt look nice post-plague. But God doesn't. God, in his mercy and in his promise, according to the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 6, makes up in Genesis 9, makes the promise that he will not flood the earth again. Never, he, that is, he will not treat the earth and the, and with the judgment it deserves. He will restrain his judgment until the last day when he brings it back at the coming of Christ. But for right now, grace is operative in the world and creation is not being ripped apart at the seams. Also, as we'll see a little bit later, redemption is at work in the world, praise God. And so creation can get turned back to its original intention and will be at the coming of our king. So let's talk about here, number three, the destruction of these plagues and what actually happened. What I want you to appreciate here is not just what we've seen so far and some of the technical aspects of the plagues and some of how they worked themselves out or even how they assaulted the gods of Egypt. But I want you to see that what's happening with these plagues is God returning the earth to a pre-Genesis creation world. He's returning it back to a formlessness and an emptiness before he spoke and acted to fill it with his goodness. These plagues are what some might call a decreation, a reversal of the created order. Instead of order being created out of chaos, there is disorder being produced from order. It leads us back to the chaos described in Genesis 1-2. Just as you read, and God said, think about this, just as we read, and God said, how many times in Genesis 1 and 2? Ten times. So we see here ten plagues that undo those ten pronouncements of Genesis 1. I think it's very intentional on Moses' part. Now I want to show you this from the text. Don't take my word for it. You never, ever, ever take the pastor's word for it. You always have to take the Bible's word for it. And I'm here to deliver the mail. So we're going to look at the text. Don't take my word for it. Let's look at the text together. I want you to see how these plagues are returning Egypt to a pre-Genesis 1-2 world, a, a world full of disorder and destruction. Think about it. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, or 1 through 5. We'll read the beginning of the Bible, where God is 
speaking and getting ready to create the world. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, there's the key phrase, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now think about this. When God created the world, he separated the light from the darkness. What did he do in the ninth plague? He blotted the light out. He blotted it out. He returned Egypt to Genesis 1-2. Formless, empty, without light. Also, look at verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let let, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. When God created the world, he gathered the water into one place, but in the first plague, he turned that water to blood, at least part of that water. Also, I won't read the other passages, but we see in verse 11, God creating vegetation. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit seeds bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. When God created the world, he made vegetation grow on the land, but in the seventh and eighth plague, he destroyed Egypt's crops. In Genesis 1 and 2, God pronounces it, very good, or at least good, before he creates man, then it's very good. He pronounces it good because things are lush and green as God intended, but in the plagues, the locusts devour the green, and all that's left is black and brown. When God created the world, he made the waters swarm with the creatures of the sea. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm, and with swarms of living creatures, we heard that word swarm before, If you pick up that word swarm, the earth will swarm. Well, here in Genesis 1, it's talking about the waters swarming with living creatures, all sorts of fish, and then the birds flying above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. This was a blessing through multiplication. In the plagues, it's a judgment through multiplication. Those those animals are teeming, but they're teeming so much they're getting out of the water and they're getting out of the skies and they're going into places they should not go. When God created the world, he made the waters swarm with creatures in the sea, but in the first and second plagues, there's widespread death due to fish and frogs and locusts and gnats and flies. Think about this. When God created the world, he made land animals and people, but he made man to rule over the animals. That's why in verse 24 of chapter 1 of Genesis, God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And then in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens 
and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. But what happens to man during the plagues? The animals exercise dominion over them. Not man exercising dominion over the animals, but the third through sixth plagues afflict both man and beast with pestilence and disease. Also, just as people were supposed to rule and fill the land subjecting the animal kingdom, yet in the plagues, the bugs and locusts fill the land and they rule it. They rule it. Egypt has gone back to the pre-creative primordial chaos of Genesis 1-2. Without form and empty and darkness covered the face of the land. This is what God's judgment does. But lest you're unconvinced, which I don't think anybody's unconvinced now, because I think I've shown the patterns, the pattern is definitely there. But I want you to look at one more text before we round this out. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is a summary of the Exodus story using Genesis 1 language. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Again, Moses writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and writes the following in his song in Deuteronomy 32. Thinking about the Exodus, the judgment of the plagues, and God's intervention on behalf of his people. Look at Exodus or Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 and 11. He found him, that is Israel, in a desert land, that is Egypt. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, literally that's formless and empty. It's the same verb as Genesis 1-2. Howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. So this is God looking out at his people after the plagues and saying, it's ruined, but I'm with them. I'm with them. Verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters, literally hovers, over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Now, go back to Genesis 1 and look at verse 3. Genesis 1-3. Well, we'll start, let's start at 2 so we can get, uh, get the context. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of, the God, of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is what God is doing. In the midst of this cataclysmic destruction that's taking place in Egypt, God is guarding his people. God is watching over his people, God is hovering over them as the Spirit of God did in the beginning, bringing life to the world. Now he is hovering over them to to protect them from the death that he is sending into the world at that very moment. And what an encouragement that should be for us as God's people. In the midst of destruction, in the midst of human sin working itself out in the decay of the world, God is attentive to us. We are the apple of his eye. We are encircled by him. We are protected by him. He takes notice of us. Don't forget Exodus chapter 2. God heard them. God saw. God knew. 
God knows us as his people, and he will bear us up like an eagle that stirs up its nest. He will encircle us. He will care for us. He will keep us as the apple of his eye. He will hover over us, spread out his wings, catch us, and bear us up. That's a beautiful picture of our God for us in all of our distress. Tim Chester, pastor in England, summarizes this whole story in the following way. He says, So now, through the plagues, God unravels creation. He sends it into reverse. Water no longer brings life. Animals no longer serve human beings. Instead, they invade like armies. Light returns to darkness and light to the the dust. Creation is headed back into its dark and chaotic state. Everything falls apart. Egypt is unmade. All around Pharaoh, the very fabric of his world, is falling apart, disintegrating into chaos, darkness, and death. This is a vivid, horrid picture of divine abandonment and judgment. But there is hope. There is hope. Why do I say there's hope? Because what is pictured here is not just Genesis 1-2. What's pictured here is the cross. Now, how can you get there, Mark? You just, you're real, you, Mark, you sometimes come up with a very unusual ways to get to Jesus. I'm not seeing this one. Well, let me show you. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. There was another day where darkness covered the land at midday. The three days of darkness over Egypt was mirrored by the three hours that covered our Savior on the cross. At the cross, the plagues fell upon Christ. God was pouring out his judgment again. And yet this time, he was not upon Pharaoh. He was not upon Egypt. It was upon his own son. The curse of God falling on him, not because of Pharaoh's sin, not because of Egypt's sin, because of our sin. It was the curse of God that fell on Jesus, the darkness that enveloped him because of our sin. 
so that all who repent turn from that sin and entrust themselves in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved from judgment. At the cross, the maker came to be unmade so that we could be remade. It's the only way it could happen. It's the only way it could happen. The Son of God was unraveled under the judgment of God, the Father. He experienced chaos. He experienced darkness. He experienced death. And as Jesus died, the rocks split and the earth shook. It was the ultimate moment of uncreation. The fabric of the universe was being ripped apart at the seams. But yet, as those very rocks split, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 52, the tombs broke open. And the bodies of many holy people who were dead had been raised to life. Because this is the maker being unmade to remake the world. Death is now working in reverse. It is serving the life-giving power of Jesus. In that moment, recreation erupted even as the Son of God was dying. Creation was being ripped apart and remade at the very same time. It was being remade as the rocks were split but it was being remade, or it was being ripped apart as the rocks were split, but it was being remade as the tombs were breaking open and the bodies of people were being raised back to life. In that moment, recreation erupted as the dead came back to life. And that, brothers and sisters, is an anticipation of the recreation of Jesus at his resurrection, and it's also a promise of our future one. Because of the work of Christ absorbing the plagues, the judgment of God against us because darkness enveloped him for three hours on the cross, we can escape the judgment of God. If he is our savior, if he is our, the one we are looking to to deliver us and save us, if he's our Lord that we're presently following, he, we belong to him and he belongs to us and everything that happened to him happened to us. We died in him. We are raised in him. Our sins are forgiven because of his cross work Just as he was raised, we too will be raised, not only spiritually to newness of life, which is what we've experienced if we're his people, but also future fullness of life in a glorified body in the new heavens and the new earth. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise and beginning of all recreation. And brothers and sisters, it's the promise and the beginning of ours as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time in your word this morning to consider this amazing, amazing event that you did in human history. We, we can scarcely take it in. We have literally only touched the surface of the devastation that you brought into Egypt through this act of judgment. But at the same time, I think we've gotten enough of a glimpse to be sobered by the reality of our sin and your judgment as well. But, oh God, thank you for the fresh sighting of Calvary this morning, for the opportunity to see Jesus as the one who bore the plagues in his body on the tree, who was enveloped, not in three days of darkness, but certainly in three hours, which speaks to the value of his person. 
the worth of our Savior. That it did not take three days of the darkness of God falling upon him to, to ransom a multitude. No, three hours will do it because our Savior is that wonderful. And so, Jesus, we worship you this morning, even as we rise to sing your praises, thanking you for bearing our judgment, for providing our righteousness, and for calling us home. May you speak life into this very room this morning for those who are yet in sin and darkness and death. Call them into your light. As God said, let light shine out of darkness. Shine into their hearts to give them the light of the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to sing.